Pastor Andy and I are the ones who picked the songs this morning, and we intentionally did not pick a Christmas song this morning. Because we're wrapping up Genesis, and this is the song, and the song we're going to sing at the end of the service are two songs we learned as we're going through Genesis, and they really bring Genesis home, because the reality is we're all going through trials, are we not? And that's, that's the lesson of Genesis and some of the things that we're learning in the book of Genesis. I also want to just remind us about next week, and uh, you'll see pockets of open seats in here. Next Sunday when it's bell choir, you will not see pockets of seats. You will not see pockets of seats that are empty. And I want to remind us to be good, hospitable hosts. Now, what that doesn't mean that some of you take it this way is, I'm going to be a good, hospitable host and I'm going to stay home. If you stay home just to have an empty seat here, no. You show up for church when the church gathers, amen? Amen. Even if you have to stand on the outside of the aisle, you show up for church, amen? But because you're good hosts, what are you going to do next week? You're not going to save seats, number one. There's nothing worse for a visitor when they come in and they go to, oh, there's an empty seat, and they find your Bible sitting there. Remember what it was like to visit a church? Do visitors like to sit up front, church, as evidenced by, where should you sit next week, church? Why? Why? Because <laughs> Mark it down, it'll be the only time that was said. <laughs> no, we sit up front so that we're good hosts, right? Do we sit on the outside aisles or do we sit on the inside? Because we want to be good hosts, right? Okay. Enough said? Okay. Consider yourself encouraged that way. Hey guys, I got good news. It's the last message in Genesis. We come to the last message in Genesis, and, and, and this, this, has been, this has been one incredible study for me and for our elders as we have gone through this and prepared in this. I think for our church, we've learned so much. I hope we've learned so much. But just like any well-written book, the last chapter of the book brings the perspective to the whole book. How many of you are people who skip to the last chapter? I'm a last chapter guy. You want to know why I'm a last chapter guy? I go to the last chapter and I'm like, is this book going to be worth reading? And if the last chapter is not worth reading, I'm not investing time in the beginning of the book. And I'll be honest with you, most Christian books that are written, they're only good for about the first three chapters. And then after that, they just keep repeating, 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 repeating. So we come to the last chapter, and, and as we come to the last chapter, it brings the whole book into perspective for us, which we need. Because Genesis is the book of beginnings, and it begins with a view of a powerful, creative God. Just stop and let let it sink in. God spoke, and what happened? It all was there. God said, let there be light, and all of a sudden, someone turned the light on. God himself, right? Out of no light ever existing, God hung the earth and the planets out there, and he created all these incredible animals and trees and flowers and things, and he put it on this earth to display his glory. And then his crowning achievement of the creation story is that God made man in his own image. 
And even as he established the marriage relationship, it is to picture the relationship that Jesus Christ wants to have with his bride, the church. And that all starts way back in Genesis, early on. We learn, and we have learned as we've gone through the book, that he's an all-wise God. Have we not seen that, church? We, we see that he is sovereign over all, that, that he absolutely calls the shots. We have seen this over and over and over. There's a way that man wants to do things, and then God does it his own way, and, and we're left to just, okay, God, you're going to do it your own way, right? We also learn that he's faithful. We've learned that, that most importantly, though, we learned this, that, that we have a God who has a redemptive plan and a purpose. And he announced that way back in Genesis chapter 3. We're still in the Garden of Eden. He looked directly at the serpent, and he said this, you may have won this fight here, but I'm going to send someone who's going to win the war. And that person is Jesus Christ. This book begins with life in all of its forms, in perfection. And interestingly, by the time we get to chapter 50, it ends with not one, but two funerals. And that should indicate something to us, shouldn't it? That should indicate something to us. It begins with, with life in its, per, in its perfection. I mean, could you get anything more perfect than the Garden of Eden? Well, one day we will in heaven, right? <laughs> But then it ends with two funerals. And in, and in the short time that it takes us to go through the book of Genesis, we see why we need a Savior, don't we? We see why we need a redemptive plan. And we're reminded vividly in this last chapter of Genesis of the curse of sin. We're reminded of the effects of sin. We're reminded that we ourselves are only on this earth for a very short period of time. And it teaches us to number our days. But against the backdrop of the deaths of Jacob and then of Joseph that we, we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 50, we are given a beautiful picture of God's providence, of God's care for His own. And it brings sense to the whole book, and it honestly brings sense to all of Scripture, and it makes our lives make sense. Because let's be honest, every single one of us in this room deals with the hardship of life. Just in the past week alone, in our own church, we have had people who have experienced the height of joys and some of the greatest things that you could experience in life. In the past year, think about your life. You've experienced some real highs, but also in just this small group of believers that, that are meeting here in Johnstown, Ohio, in the past year, in the past week, in the past month, we have also experienced the low of lows. Have we not? I'm looking out and I'm looking at your faces. Many of you have experienced unfathomable loss. And if we don't have the book of Genesis, and specifically Genesis 50, recorded for us, some of this just doesn't make sense. Some of this just doesn't make sense. And let's be honest, sometimes life doesn't make sense. Anybody agree with me on that? God, why would you do that? 
God, and, and, I mean, we would never be this disrespectful to, to actually verbalize this, but we would think it, God, what were you thinking here? Or how dare you do that, God? But let's be honest. We also have to admit this. We're pretty feeble-minded. Right? When it comes to the mind of God and the mind of man, <laughs> he's definitely playing checkers at advanced level, and we are, are we playing chess at an advanced level, and we are barely playing checkers. And so... I pray that the Holy Spirit gives us understanding this morning through His Word and that He, and that he opens our eyes to see truth this morning. So one final time, turn with me to the book of Genesis. And we're going to get some perspective as we go through the last chapter of Genesis this morning. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me go. Please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen, and was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Etad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with, great, with very great and grievous lamentation, and they made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grieving mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was called Abel, Mizraim, and it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, be comforted. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. 
And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. Father, in the moments that we have, Use your word to encourage us. Use your word to give us perspective. Use your word to do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Got to be quick this morning. I first want you to see a, Joe, or Jacob's exodus himself. We see Joseph as we begin this chapter in the depths of grief. I mean, you see it there in verse 1. His father has passed away at the end of chapter 49, and we see Joseph immediately falling before him, and he's on his father's face, weeping over him and kissing him. Joseph enjoyed a 17-year reunion with his father, but you know what? 17 years weren't enough. Have you ever experienced that at a loss of a loved one? It just wasn't enough. It's where Joseph is. And so Joseph, in all of his grief, and let's be honest this morning, many of us try to deal with grief by pushing it down and acting like it doesn't exist. Grief is real. And in fact, grief is an indication of how much we love the one that God has taken away from us. But Joseph's grief here doesn't keep him from carrying out his father's wishes, does it? Joseph leads his family and, 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 and I would submit to you, and I would say this to men this morning. Many of us read Genesis chapter 50 and verse 1, and we see that as weakness. We see that as weakness. Joseph, that big sissy crying. You know what? Maybe we don't cry, men, because we don't love as we should. Maybe we don't cry because we don't love as we should. Maybe we're not willing to express our love as we should. Here's a guy who's not afraid to cry over the death of his daddy. It shouldn't be seen as weakness, but as a genuine expression of a grief-stricken heart. I would submit to you, men, your children need to see you broken sometimes. They need to see you broken why? Not because they need to see a sensitive man. No, they just see, need to see that a real man does get sorrowful. That a real, man, a real man does love somebody enough that whenever that's taken away from him, he's crying over it. And Joseph models that for us in our text this morning. But he carries out his father's wishes. What's interesting to me is Joseph has the body prepared, and, and we might be tempted to think that, okay, here's Joseph in the land of Egypt, and now he's bought into the whole religion of Egypt, you know, where they worship the dead, and, they, and they're looking for a greater afterlife. No, Joseph has the body prepared because he knows that body needs to take a journey. He knows that body needs to take a journey, and so he allows the Egyptians to do what the Egyptians do with the body and embalm it and take care of it because he knows that that body is not going to stay there in Egypt. It needs to go somewhere. The scriptures point out for us, Moses writes for us, that they mourned for 70 days. It's interesting to me because history records for us that the normal mourning period for an Egyptian pharaoh 
when they died was 72 days. Here is Jacob, who is nothing but a shepherd. He's the father of a, of a large group and a large clan of families here. And all of Egypt stops and mourns for 70 days for this guy. And I have to stop and ask myself, why? Why? Well, because I think that's indicative to us of the kind of respect that the Egyptians had for Joseph. And so now Joseph's father dies. And this thing turns out to be an affair of state. Have you ever watched like the burial of like a president or of like a famous leader of another country? And they turn into this whole affair of state. When JFK died, <laughs> I mean, they, they, had, they had representatives from just about every country show up here in Washington, D.C., and they had this full funeral that goes through, and they, they literally horse-drawn Kaysen taking the, the, the funeral procession through Washington, D.C., and that's kind of what we see here. Because what's listed for us is we have the important elders of Egypt. Those are the heads of state there in Egypt who are Pharaoh's advisors. You have Jacob's family. And then according to verse 9, you even have the military showing up to, to be a part of this funeral for, for Jacob. This is no ordinary funeral. And I could spend so much time unpacking it, but I don't have time to do that this morning. But I point this out to us that Joseph and the sons of Jacob carried out their father's wishes. They actually got it done, didn't they? And they get him buried. And in verse 14, I'll just point this out. There comes a point for grieving to end, does there not? There comes a point for grieving to end. I don't know when that point is always, <laughs> but, but life has to go on. And it's, it's, a, it's a hard cold world whenever you're the one who's grieving and it seems like everyone else around you has gone back to living life, isn't it? That's hard. But even for Joseph, he has to go back to life. Verse 14, he has to return to Egypt and they have to go back to their, to their lives that they have. They have to go back to their families. They have to go back to doing what God's called them to do. And I think of, of the words of Ecclesiastes, there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to bury and there's a time to rejoice in life. And so we have to move on, don't we? But we come to this section in verses 15 through 21, which is where I want to focus our attention this morning. And this is the section that brings perspective to all of Genesis. And it begins with an irrational request in verses 15 through 18. It begins with a request, and it honestly is a deception. It's a lie. It's not truth. Jacob never said that to his sons. And so they have this irrational fear in verse 15. And we have to ask ourselves, where is this fear that they have? It may be, do you see it there? That Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Basically saying this, Joseph was only nice to us while daddy was alive. Joseph honored daddy enough, and actually what they're saying about him is, Joseph was more honorable with daddy than any of us ever were. And so now that daddy's dead, we got we to make sure that Joseph doesn't mistreat us. And you see in verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 
And what this is, is a backhanded admission of their sin against Joseph, is it not? It's not a direct admission of it, but it's a backhanded admission of it. And, and, and what, what I find here is something that I find that you and I wrestle with today. And it's an improper understanding of some really important biblical ideas, such as repentance, forgiveness, and restitution. If you understand anything about the Scriptures, you need to understand those things. What is true repentance? What is true forgiveness? What is restoration all about? The brothers didn't understand forgiveness. Joseph had already forgiven them, hadn't he? He'd already forgiven them, but they didn't understand it because their hearts didn't resonate with that. And the reason their hearts didn't resonate with that is, is because their own consciences were prompting them and because their own consciences were telling them, you've done something wrong and you haven't made it right. Something that you and I deal with every day probably. You see, they had never confessed their sin to Joseph. And in fact, they still really hadn't confessed their sin by sending this messenger to give Joseph this. It was kind of a backhanded, as I said, confession of sin. Too often, friend, you and I sin against a holy God and we sin against one another. Anybody else in this room fit in that? <laughs> we sin against God and we sin against one another. And when we do that, we want to rush the process and we want to get to the good stuff at the end. We want to have restoration, don't we? Like, we, let's just make this right. Let's all hug it out, sing kumbaya, and just move on, right? That's what we want to get to, the warm, fuzzy stuff. Some of us don't want to hug, I understand that. But we want to get to the good stuff, don't we? We want to get to the restoration part. But I want to tell you this, you can't have true restoration until the one who has sinned, the one who has offended, has truly repented. You see, repentance is saying the same thing about my sin that God would say about my sin. Repentance isn't a simple, I did the wrong thing here. That's a good start. That's a good start, but that's not repentance. Repentance is I am saying the same thing about my sin that God says about it, and then because God hates my sin, I'm turning from it. I'm turning from it. And you see, the only true and correct way to deal with a guilty conscience is to repent. If you're sitting here this morning and you feel guilty about something, the only way to alleviate yourself of that heavy burden of guilt is to truly repent of it. You know, my favorite example of this is found in the Gospels, and we don't have time to turn to it. Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the story, don't you? The, the younger son goes to the dad, and he says this, you know what, dad, I wish you were dead, because if you were dead, I would get my inheritance. And he basically says, I want my inheritance, and I want it now. I wish you would just hurry up and die, but because you haven't, just give me my inheritance. And the dad does it. And Jesus, as he tells this story in Luke chapter 15, verse 17, you can look at it later, it says this about the son. The son came to himself. We're good at the sinning part, are we not? We're not real good at the part about coming to ourselves and realizing, man, I have really 
made a mess of it here. And he, you know how we know that he really came to himself? Because he comes to the Father and he, and, he, and he just says this, I have sinned against you and I don't deserve to be called a son anymore. Make me a servant. When was the last time you took your sin that seriously? I have sinned against heaven and before you. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy of any forgiveness. I'm throwing myself on your mercy. You know the reason we don't seek forgiveness from one another is because it makes us really vulnerable. You say, how so? If I wrong Paul, which I've done, haven't I, Paul? Yes. And I go to Paul and I say, Paul, I have sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? You know what I have totally lost there? I've lost all control of the situation. I've given it to him. And I said, you can either choose to forgive me or not. Here's the thing. Paul, because he's a man, may or may not forgive me. But when I do it to God every time, God promises this, I will forgive you. And for the record, Paul always forgives me too. But you see, you and I don't like that humbling part, do we? Where we throw ourselves on the mercy of God or the mercy of another person. Fathers, I've made a lot of application through Genesis to us as families. Let me give you another one. Model for your children what true repentance and forgiveness and restoration are. Because the world isn't modeling it to them. It's not modeling it to them. The world is telling you that, well, your problem is, is because somebody else did this to you. No, the problem and the reason we sin is because we are sinners. And we have sinful natures. And the only way to make it right is to repent of our sin. We don't need therapy. We don't need all these other things. We need a revival of our own hearts. But notice Joseph's perspective in this. Joseph could have easily crushed his brothers and said, you know dad didn't say that, and finally you're admitting your sin to me. But notice Joseph's perspective in verses 19 and 20. And before we unpack it, Joseph just didn't get this perspective overnight, did he? Joseph's perspective came through years of hardship. It came through years of trials of life. This is a wisdom from a guy who we would say in our common vernacular had been there and lived it. That's where this wisdom comes from. And here is Joseph. And he says, the first thing that he says to them is, to put it in a Scarberry paraphrase, <laughs> let's leave the making right of wrongs in the hands of God. Do you see it there in verse 19? But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And that's a question we all have to ask. Am I trying to take on God's job in this, or am I going to let God be God? Because let's be honest. Every single one of us in this room has experienced injustice. Am I right? And when we experience injustice, we have this thing that I like to call an inner lawyer. Every one of us has one. None of you want to admit that you have a lawyer, except some of you in this room who are lawyers. 
But we have this inner lawyer, and that inner lawyer wants to prosecute all injustice that's been done against us, but it doesn't want to prosecute the injustice that we do. Am I right? And you know what happens? We go after people a lot harder than we want people to go after us. And Joseph says this, I'm not God. And, and, and here's the thing, I, I, I can't play God in this. All I can do is do what God's called me to do. In Romans chapter 12, and I would advocate that you go read this later too. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, Paul basically, let me give you the bullet points of this. He says in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 18, live peaceably with all men as much as possible, even your enemies, even the ones who have done wrong to you. Verse 19, never avenge yourselves, leave it with God's hand. And actually he says this, put it under God's hands, God's wrathful hands. Verse 20, he says this, rather feed your enemy and give him drink. What? It's in the Bible. You don't believe me? Romans 12, verse 20. And then he says this in verse 21. Why? Because he says, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You want to know why there's wars in our world today? Because we're trying to overcome evil with more evil. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a pacifist. Don't, don't read that into me. But the reason we have war and fighting today is because we're trying to overcome evil with more evil. Right? So first, Joseph says this. This is what brings us perspective. Let God be God. Friend, in all of the hardships that you have experienced... In all of the things that you have, have had to unpack in your life, the first thing I would recommend to you to do is to ask this question, where is God in all of this? And let him be God, because you can't be God. Let God be God. You say, I don't like a God who does that. I understand that. But let God be God. Let God be God. Secondly, Joseph points out to his brothers, there's something greater at play here than, than, than just me being God. What's greater at play here is this, is that God is going to do what God does, and he's going to always do it for good. You see it there in verse 20? As for you, you malicious brothers, you meant evil against me. Is that a true statement? They wanted him harmed bad. They wanted him to suffer and it wasn't just them. Pharaoh's wife, or not Pharaoh's, Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph to suffer, didn't she? He, he suffered neglect when he was in prison. All these people Joseph is thinking about as he's talking to his brothers. Life is full of hardships. It's full of people who kick you when you're down. It's full of people who don't give a rip about you. But in spite of all of that, notice what he says. You meant it for evil, but what did God mean it for? Say it with me, church. God meant it for what? Do you believe that? Or is it just something you say to somebody else when they're going through hardship? Or do you really believe that about your own life? God, you meant it for good in my life. You really did. You meant it for good in my life. 
We have several instances of this in Scripture. In Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, as God is talking to His beloved people, Israel, He says this, I know the plans I have for you. And that's in the middle of them being judged for their sin by Babylon. And I want to tell you, when Babylon judged them for their sins, it wasn't pretty. And He says to them, I know the plans I have for you, and the plans I have for you haven't changed If it's true of Israel, is that true of you, friend? Does God have a plan for you? Yeah, because in Romans 8, 28, we read this, all things. When God says all, does he mean all, church? Does he really mean that? Even the bad stuff, the stuff we don't like, the icky stuff. Even the stuff that we saw in Genesis, like, like oh man, like rapes and, and being beaten and thrown in wells. And stuff like that. Does God use that for good, church? Do we understand it? Be honest. Do we understand it? No. We don't understand it. But God says this. All things work together for good for those who love God. Let me give you three things that you need to remember in any trial. If you're the child of God. Let me give you three things that you need to remember in any trial. Man, that clock is my enemy this morning. There's three things you need to know. Number one, God will be glorified. That's the number one thing you need to know. God will be glorified. Can you stop God from getting His glory? Can, can the worst thing that happens in life stop God from getting His glory? Can God get glory even in what's going on in Palestine and Israel right now? Somehow, some way. God's going to get glory in that, isn't he? Remember this, number one, God will be glorified. Number two, remember this. God has promised that for the ones who love him, all things are working together for good. He's promised it. Does God keep his promises, church? Do we always understand how he's going to do it? Does that change the fact that he's going to work it together for good? Doesn't change it one bit, does it? Doesn't change it at all. And then number three, this is the hard one. God's in control. God's in control, which, which tells us what? Who isn't in control? Who wants to be in control? This is Joseph's testimony. You meant it for evil. And it was totally out of my control, but God has been good and been faithful through this whole thing. But I didn't really see it till the very end of all of this. I saw it little bits and pieces, and now we see what he did. Notice what he says. God used it so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You guys intended to just act out on a sibling rivalry, and God used the little sibling rivalry thing, the thing that should have been just in our family. He used it to benefit the whole world, because that's how big our God is. And then you have to ask yourself, is God is really going to be glorified if he promises good for those who love him? And if he really is in control, then you have to ask yourself just this question, will I orient myself to those truths? Or will I take matters into my own hands? Or will I complain about my circumstances? Or will I make life miserable for everybody else around me? Because that's typically what we do, is it not? Joseph had 
every ability at this moment to say, you know what, brothers, you're right. You did mean harm for me, and you know what? You're going to get to experience what an Egyptian prison is like. He had every ability and every power to do that, didn't he? But he said this, I'm not going to play God. I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to let God deal with you in his way. Real quick, I wanted to say so many other things there. Real quick. Joseph dies in faith too, just like Jacob did. Notice, notice, Joseph's brothers outlived Joseph, and he's the second youngest, right? And Joseph then makes this great faith statement in verse 25, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Those of you who know your your Bible history, how long did it take for that to happen? Like 400 years, didn't it? But he said, God is going to visit you. And and, and when when he does, I'm going to have my body prepared. Yeah, it's going to be embalmed and they're going to put it in one of those fancy Egyptian caskets like King Tut. But when you guys leave here, make sure you take me. Take my body out of here. That's a faith statement. In fact, in Hebrews eleven twenty two, the one thing that the writer of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit notes for us that, that is the faith thing about J- or Joseph is by faith he commanded that his bones should be taken out of, out of Egypt. It wasn't by faith that he survived you know, the mistreatment by his brothers, even though it was, but that's not the thing that's noticed. It's not the fact that, that by faith he endured the prisons. It's by faith he gave a command that his bones should be taken out of Egypt. And you want to know why? It's because Joseph had great hope. And he lived by faith. And the final lesson that Genesis gives to us in those final verses is the only way to live is to live by faith. The only way to live is to live by faith. And too often we want to live by what we see, don't we? We want to live by what we feel. That's a dangerous way to live, isn't it? To live by what we feel. But it's scary to live by faith. Hence the country song, Jesus Take the Wheel. Right? Worst song ever written. Jesus Take the Wheel. But the, the expression of the song is right. It's a scary thing to put your hands in the life of Jesus. But it's a scarier thing to realize that you ultimately don't have control over your life. His hands are on the wheel anyway. This morning, if you're in Christ, you're a child of the promise. We've seen that in Genesis, have we not? You're a child of the promise. You are, you are Abraham's descendant. And the promises to Abraham are to you. And we, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph before us, we have to do what they did. We have to walk by faith. And if we learned anything in the book of Genesis is faith walks are hard. Are they not, church? They're hard. But we've also learned this, that they're so worth it. They're so worth it. And so, we're going to affirm it one last time even though we're way over time. You stand while I pray. We're in band, get up here real quick. We're going to sing by faith because that's the only way that we can live is by faith. And so, Father, renew our spirits. Renew our understanding of you this morning that, that you 
are the God who's in control. Remind us of those three things, God. You're going to be glorified no matter what. Remind us that, that all things are working for our good. And remind us that you are in control. And then, Lord, if you have to, make us orient our lives to those truths so that we live in a way that acknowledges your good presence in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.